Blog Talk Radio. Are we on? Yes, we Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition, the Wednesday night edition of Sports Conversation on the Fighting Network, and we look forward every Wednesday night to joining all of you and talking sports, obviously. Our main man and conductor, Frank Carroll, is uh, 
directing the ship tonight, as always. Roy Cummings is in Tampa, Florida. We're going to have Phil Martelli on with us, one of the assistant coaches at the University of Michigan. It's at 8 o'clock. Bobby, the Chiefs, Dan will be on to talk about the playoffs. We'll have uh, Mike Sintek up from Washington, Baltimore, and Doug Hamilton in Washington. They'll be coming up tonight on the show. But before we start, Frank, I know you've got a dedication and a commercial, and let's get that out of the way. Yeah, Don, we're uh, going to dedicate tonight's program to a young lady who's had a very tough uh, time in life, uh, almost killed at the age of uh, 18 in an automobile accident, uh, has survived, done a miraculous job with her, herself now, and got herself back. Um, she had coded actually three times uh, from the time she was uh, in the accident, in the uh, in the ER, and uh, on the floor. So uh, this uh, this is dedicated to my daughter uh, Megan on her, uh, the anniversary of her, her uh, I see it be many anniversaries of her 21st birthday. I, I never give a lady's uh, age away. But uh, <laughs> Megan, happy, happy birthday, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It's become apparent that uh, there's nothing. Everything is going up especially your electric bill. They just passed another 28% on top of the 12% you got uh, earlier in the year. And one of the ways to beat that is to use biosolar. Biosolar installs uh, solar panels on your roof, does a great job, uh, does an efficient job, and then you write a contract with them, which continues on for 25 years at the exact price that you sign at. So if you have have a chance, give them a call, it's area code 727-314-6976. And as for Patrick, uh, Patrick is a, is a good friend of ours, and, um, and the first 10 people that call this week will get uh, a $200 bonus, uh, cash bonus, uh, when they sign the contract. <clears throat> That's it, Todd. Okay, ready to go. And uh, thanks, Frank, very much. Uh, let's get to Roy Cummings okay. over in Tampa because – a lot yeah. of things happening over he's there. Yeah. Hold on, Don. Hold on, Hey, Don, I'm no. here too. Okay, Roger is in Atlanta. He's ready to go. So, <laughs> no, we're going. And guess what? I'm not in Atlanta. I'm in the city of brotherly love. Back in Philly. Yes. Okay. Well, tell us. Uh, let's go that way first, Roger, and because uh, a lot of things are happening in Philly right now, and and. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies are fighting and trying to come up with a winning combination. So far, it's been a struggle. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they look like they're getting better. Now, I came up uh, uh, because I uh, have a lot of things going on, including the uh, sports writers' banquet on uh, Monday night. And, um, the, um, you know, I'll be doing the most courageous again. Uh, we can't publicize that, uh, you know, yet. So, uh, but anyway. Uh, well, you're talking about the Philadelphia Sports Writers Banquet, so everybody knows yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, that's what I just said. The Philadelphia Sports Writers Banquet is Monday night. It used to be at the Crown Plaza in Cherry Hill. It's now at the, it's called the Double Tree, And uh, there will be a lot of uh, uh, past uh, uh, well-known sports personalities from the area. Uh, that everybody knows, and uh, of course, one conflict now is the Sixers may be, uh, probably going to be playing that night if they can't beat the uh, Toronto. And uh, but anyway, we want to get to Roy, and we can have plenty of time to talk about what's going on here. <laughs> uh, you know, okay. during the, uh, the show. Uh, 
All right, let's bring Roy Cummings in in Tampa, Florida. And, of course, Roy, uh, a lot of things going on right now there as well. The, the Rays are playing pretty good baseball. The Lightning are trying to turn things around, and uh, we're getting ready for the draft. So uh, let's start off with the Lightning. How about the turnaround? They're doing a little bit better the last couple of games. Yeah, they really have. Uh, obviously, the scoring is back, um, and they're getting it from uh, a lot of different sources and uh, just at the right time. Uh, this is exactly what you want to see out of this team at this point. Uh, you want to see them, uh, you certainly want to see them scoring, um, you know, and uh, that's good. They've got a good test here to finish up the season. A couple of playoff teams still don't know who their p- opponent's going to be, but I think they're feeling a little bit better about themselves. And Well, they should. I mean, uh, obviously when you're scoring six, seven, eight goals a game against pretty good teams, you know, Nashville's certainly not a bad team. Uh, went up and uh, beat Washington, so that's pretty good as well. Florida, rather, uh, you got you know you you start beating teams like that, scoring uh, more than four or five goals, you're getting the job done. So um, obviously they're feeling better about themselves. It, it appears as though they might have just somehow flipped the switch, and uh, it, it's all going their way now. So we'll see how it lasts, how long it lasts. Um, you know, it, like I said, uh, the the biggest thing this team has to do is play a little bit better, tighter. Uh, defensively, if they can get that done, uh, you know we'll see what happens. So it's going to be a good uh, it's going to be a good series for them, no matter who they play. It could be the Rangers, could be the Islanders. Uh, I'm mean, won't be the Islanders. <laughs> could be the Bruins, could be Toronto. So uh, we'll see where it goes. Well, we got Roger and Philly, and he's also in Atlanta, of course, living in Atlanta now, and and you're in Tampa. <clears throat> Let's look ahead quickly for two clubs: uh, the Atlanta Falcons, and of course the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and uh, have you got any insight on where you think it's going to be their first pick, or, or are they going to make a move in the draft? Is that a question for me? Yep. Yeah, uh, I assume about Tampa Bay. Well, I, I think, you know, look, where they are, and we've talked about this many times, you know, where they are in the draft, they kind of got to wait and, and make things happen for themselves. Um, you know, they've got to they got to wait for every, everything else to play out. I don't think in this particular draft, based on the way it's kind of building out or, or, you know, the way it's been, it's kind of projected to go. Uh, there's not a lot of superstar quality in the draft. It's not like, you know, I don't think there's anybody that you really want to trade up to get. Now that, that could change. Obviously there could be somebody that the, the Bucks absolutely think is a guy that they have to have and uh, they might want to trade up to do it. I don't think they will because again, I think uh, Jason Light is a guy who likes to, hold on to his draft picks, uh, if anything, add more during the draft. Um, so I don't think they would, uh, you know, entertain too too, off, too much to entertain a, a move up. And I don't think they need to because I think they can stay right where they are and, and get what they need, which in essence, to me, I think offensive line is the biggest need um, for them. And um, there's going to be, you know, a couple of good ones right there for them uh, where they uh, where they are projected to pick, 27. Uh you know, Kenyon Green is a guard out of Texas A&M who's played a little bit of tackle. Um, you know, that's the kind of guy they're looking for. They want versatility, somebody who's played a little bit, uh, played a couple of positions, played them well. Uh, Kenyon Green is that kind of guy. Uh, there's, an, you know, uh, you've also got uh, Bernard uh, Raymond, a uh, kid out of uh, USC and out of um, – he's also out of Australia, so – you know, that could happen. So we'll see where this goes, but uh, I think the Bucks are going to be just fine staying right where they are. They could get a guard there that can challenge the start, that left the right guard for them, 
and improve that offensive line, which is, I think, what they got to do. I think they've got to work. Uh, they've got to work at protecting Tom Brady a little bit here, and if they can get that done, I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna feel uh, much better about their chances uh, going forward here. Roger, you're in your second home in Philadelphia momentarily, but yeah. so you talk about the Eagles as well as the Atlanta Falcons. Let's talk about the Eagles first, since you're right there. Well, I'll tell you, Don and uh, Roy and Frank, it was interesting. I heard a conversation today on WIP. Uh, one of the co-hosts is John Ritchie, the former fullback for the Eagles, and uh, our friend Ray Binger uh, was on. And uh, they, one of the callers had a good point. You know, they've got two first-round picks. And this caller, and it was pretty much they agreed, the, the, uh, the broadcasters agreed, that they may get rid of that first-round pick uh, and use it next year or get additional uh, early-round picks because they're tight on cap. And, you know, when you have two first-round picks plus what you already have signed and what, and what you have to sign, you still have to sign, it could be a financial problem. So, uh, but the, I know on Saturday uh, we were, uh, I was with Roy and, and Glenn, I called in, and uh, my pick is Jeff, uh, Jordan Davis from, um, from Georgia, the big defensive tackle. And I know Glenn uh, uh, agreed with me on that. And I think, uh, you know, Ray, to an extent, Ray's concern is that uh, his weight, uh, because he was down at the Maxwell uh, Club Awards, uh, Davis was, and the, they asked him about his weight. He played at 350 uh, during the uh, uh, Georgia National Championship season. So, uh, and who knows whether he'll be there. Uh, but as far as the Falcons go, uh, I, I think that uh, I'm not so sure they won't take a quarterback, even though this is not a deep quarterback draft. Uh, because they may be looking at a prospect that got a couple of years and uh, by Mariota, and then and then uh, bring this, the uh, new quarterback. Uh, but uh, they have a lot of oh, a lot of needs uh, throughout the roster. Uh, but that would not surprise me if they took a quarterback. And Roy, uh, the Panthers uh, have notified their quarterback that they're going to be bringing in a secondary quarterback. Now, whether it's going to be a veteran, whether it's going to be somebody they're going to trade for, but they're going to put a little pressure on the quarterback that they traded for last year. Yeah, clearly. And uh, look, I mean, you look at some mock drafts, you know, for what they're worth, uh, they're usually about uh, 8% correct. But a lot of mock drafts have the Panthers uh, taking Malik Willis, the quarterback out of Liberty. I, I Personally, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, nothing wrong with Malik Willis, but my, my concern would be that you're going to ask this guy to come out of Liberty and as a number one draft pick. I just think it's a little bit early, uh, you know, picking sixth, seventh overall. So, um, you know, I, I think this is a draft, and I was going to, you know, mention this to Roger as well. I think this is a draft where if you want to move back a few spots, you can probably get the quarterback you're looking for late first round, even second or third round in this because, again, that star, that real star quarterback is not there this time around. You know, we'll see how right. Malik Willis works out. Uh, we'll see how the, uh, how, uh, the others come, come around. You know, again, it's just, it's not a great quarterback draft. And I think, um, you know, I, 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 the interesting thing, though, is that in the NFC South, uh, where Atlanta and Carolina are, both teams are kind of looking for a quarterback. And uh, you know what? Wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, New Orleans 
drafted a quarterback at some point in this draft. Uh, just because, you know, you, you've got Jameis Winston, but, you know, what, what, what is behind it? You know, you don't have much there either. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. So I think this is going to, again, it's an interesting draft from the standpoint of it doesn't have the star power at quarterback, but it's got a lot of depth. I think a lot of teams will be interested in moving back in this draft as opposed to moving up. Um, so we'll see how, uh, obviously, everybody, how it works out. And uh, it'll all be happening tomorrow night about this time. I'll tell you, it's really interesting to look at uh, what's happening in the different conferences. First of all, you just mentioned the South. And when we were talking about the Carolina Panthers and possibly putting a little pressure on bringing a new quarterback in. But the South and the NFC East, which for years and years and years were really the most consistently good uh, areas in the National Football League. And, Roger, uh, it wasn't last year. I don't know that it's going to be this year, and I don't know that the NFC South is going to be that great. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Don. The, uh, the South, uh, other than with the Bucks, uh, you know, uh, who else uh, do you see that uh, uh, could really stand with them? I don't see anybody. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Roger. I agree. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Roger 100%. Uh, and, and look, I, I'm not so sure how good the Bucks are going to be. Yeah, yeah, they were they were obviously a very very good team last year, but they were also beatable. And obviously, got you know didn't make it to the Super Bowl. And uh, there were times when you thought you know New Orleans might be a better team uh, if they'd been able to hold on to a, a healthy quarterback. Who knows what would have happened there? So, um, you know, Carolina's coming up a little bit. Um, I, I like what. What uh, Rule is doing there, uh, I think he's got you know a good program developed, and and I think they're they're doing the right thing. But um, overall, the South is is it's 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 a good division, certainly not a great one. It's good at best, and you can't even really say that about the about the East. It's it's really not very good at all. And uh, you know Dallas wins almost by default just because they're the best of the of a bad bunch of football teams. And I don't know that much is going to change there in either, either division uh, this time around. So we'll see what happens, but uh, you're right. Uh, but again, this draft could change a few things. You never know. I don't think it's a draft that really changes. That does, you know, I don't think it, I, I don't think it changes a lot, but you never know. It could. Agree with that, Roger. Yeah, I, th- I think Roy, you're right. I, where I, I see it could really change is on the defensive side of the ball because it seems like it's a pretty deep draft uh, throughout the defense. And, uh, you know, but, you know, the, the quarterback situation is up in the air. I mean, I think if Jalen Hurts doesn't produce this year, I don't think that they'll, the Eagles are going to look at him as the long-term uh, quarterback, uh, uh, you know, uh, ish, or, uh, answer. And, uh, and, you know, we talked about the Panthers <laughs> – I mean, in the South, and then the Giants definitely have issues. Uh, and you're right. The uh, Cowboys are about the uh, only one, and we'll have to see what Wentz does with the Redskins. Uh, because, you know, Wentz seems to be, uh, Wentz seems to be uh, you know, one year and gone. Uh, and that's, that's the way it's been the last couple of years. Well, yeah, before right we run out of time, I want to touch on baseball for just a second because John Heyman – uh, since you're in Philly, Roger, rather than in Atlanta, you may have seen the New York Post today, but John Heyman has a terrific, terrific piece about baseball and what's going on right now in the first uh, almost month of the season. The big headline is snoreboard, snoreboard. 
and uh, he's comparing it to 1968, probably the uh, slowest uh, season of all time in baseball as far as being entertaining. And he goes through a number of different areas. The weather, of course, he credits. The uh, humidor he credits with being a big problem right now. The deep pens, though, nobody's using uh, any length for pitchers, so the hitters aren't hitting. There's no hitting. The analytics have gone up the drain. And uh, he, he said, thank God, maybe the analytics are going to get away next year. And, of course, with the ball being in the humidor has really made a tremendous effect on the game so far, especially in the cold weather, and the fact that it's a different ball. Major League Baseball has changed the ball and softened it up. And now we've got uh, just a, a game of nothing. Roy? Don, I'm reading the article as we speak. I was reading it. A little earlier, you're exactly right. He hits the nail on the head, everything we've been talking about with baseball. Well, he hits every, he hits every corner and, you know, explains talks about, uh, you know, when Gibson in 1968 had that unbelievable ERA and they had to change the mound and all. But they got, they got so many changes on the docket now for next year trying to save this game. I mean, they have gone just 100% in the wrong direction. Roy? Wow, it's, uh, I have not read the article, but I certainly will. Um, kind of actually surprised to hear. And look, I respect John Heyman. Uh, he's obviously one of the best insiders in the game. But um, boy, oh boy, I, I, I think maybe I'm watching a different game. I mean, I, I think teams are starting to steal bases a little bit more. Uh, I think they're That's running. That's what he wants. Well, I, I think it's happening. Um, number one, I, I do think the ball is is not as lively. And I'm, I got to be honest, I'm not necessarily upset with that. Um, mm-hmm. I, look, I love the home run too, but I'm not a big fan of, you know, everything coming from the home run. I, I, I like the fact that, I mean, we've seen some incredible plays defensively. Um, I, to be honest, I, I think the game, to me, it looks a little bit better right now than it has over the last couple of years. I think some of the hitters are starting to catch up to some of these pitchers that, uh, you know, just throw 98 miles an hour. And, and I think there's, you know, I think the ball has been in play a little bit more. Um, I think teams are starting to build their teams like that um, to, to be that kind of team. And uh, so, I, look, I, I, like I say, I haven't read the article. I will read it. Um, but I, I honestly think that the game is starting to make some subtle changes, to me, for the better. And uh, it's based on the fact that I think, you know, there's a lot of good pitching and defense out there. But I think teams are, tr- are trying to uh, counter that by, by running a little bit more and hitting, run, hitting and running a little bit. So I don't know. Maybe we'll, maybe I'm seeing a different game. I, I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting uh, take, that's for sure, by John Heyman. Well, that's pretty much it. Roger can follow up too. That's pretty much what he's looking for. He's looking for the game to go back where it was competitive and interesting. And he talks about this launch angle, and uh, you know, two years ago, you know, a little second baseman could hit the ball out, so everybody wanted to hit the ball out. Now all we get is the launch angle and <clears throat> speed off the bat. And what he's saying is that, you know, all that brings is, is a bunch of strikeouts and uh, no interest as far as sitting in the stands watching the game. We want to go back to what you're talking about, hit run, doing things that make the game much more interesting. And that's really the, the genesis as well as the fact that so many things have changed, especially the fact that the humidor and the ball has been changed. It's not going out of the park anymore. Yeah, you're right about that, and, uh, and and that's something. You know, I don't know that baseball needs to really mess around with the ball. I mean, uh, if if they could somehow, you know, 
maybe they've got some kind of mathematical equation that determines uh, how the ball is made each year. It'd be nice if they went back, you know, to what it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago or something and just stuck with that. I don't know why they have to keep changing it, but um, it, it does seem as though home runs are down a little bit. Um, there's no question about that. I know the Tigers, I think they have eight home runs so far this season. It's their fewest home runs uh, in, in, to start a season through this part of the the, uh, the year. Um, but also, they don't really have a, whole, a bunch of home run hitters. Uh, Cabrera is not the home run hitter that he has been in the past, obviously. Spencer Torkelson, who is uh, one of their top uh, prospects, is up in the big leagues this year. He's a big power hitter, but he's off to a slow start, as are most of the young uh, top prospects, uh, which to me, again, that's an, you know, so there's not a whole lot of home run hitters there. Um, you know, and look, the weather's been cold. Let's not forget that. It's, it's harder to hit uh, in cold weather. It's certainly harder to hit home runs in cold weather. So uh, I think as the, as, the, as the weather warms up, I think the, the bats will start to warm up and you'll start to see a little bit more power, dis, power displayed. But again, it's, you know, let's, let's, uh, I, think, I think it's a small sample. I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm a little surprised that John Heyman would go, go to this article now uh, with such a small sample size. We're not even a month into the season. I think it's a little bit too soon to start making judgments on what kind of a year it's going to be in terms of hitting and defense and everything else. Well, he emphasizes well, it's a small sample, no question about that, but he also talks about the fact that uh, <clears throat> now we're going to get rid of the 14 pitchers, which he thinks is another problem because nobody's trying to pitch more than one or two winnings. You know, they're not, uh, they're not extending the pitching staff at all, and also the fact that there's no spring training, the pitchers, for the most part, were well ahead of the hitters, which also is keeping the batting averages down. Roger? Well, I can tell you, it's, uh, Roy, it's cold here and very windy in Philadelphia tonight for the Phillies game against uh, the uh, Rockies. But I did want to – I don't know whether any of you saw uh, the uh, FBI, you know, there's on, on – um, Tuesday night, you've got three FBI's, the regular, then you've got the uh, uh, international, and then most wanted. Well, the regular, the first one last night, it was really interesting. A guy came in from one of the agencies, and it was about a, a possible serial killer, and then he took his daughter hostage, and they had the shootout and everything. He was using nothing but analytics. And uh, Alana DeGarza, who's the uh, FBI chief, she, they got into it, and it was that he was using analytics and she was using gut feeling. And I thought this was like really saying, taking a, a, a subject uh, from baseball, okay, gut feeling versus analytics. We talked about it with managers. And so – here it's even getting into TV shows now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, very interesting. Well, I'll say this about analytics. You know, analytics works, but gut feeling works too. You know, I right. think the issue, part of the issue is, is that most of the, most of the people running base now are, are a little bit younger. You don't have too many people from the old school running teams. And uh, not only that, but, you know, look, it, it all started with the A's. Uh, back in the day with Moneyball, you know, that's how mm-hmm. analytics started. And a team, you know, for a, a low-salary team or, you know, a, a, a team in a small market, you know, think uh, Pittsburgh, Oakland, Kansas City, Tampa Bay, um, it, it, you know, 
obviously analytics work. And, um, you know, you've got this information at your at hand. You know, I think it makes sense to use it. A- am I a fan of overanalyzing the game? No, I'm not. Um, but uh, I understand why it's done, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But I want to say before I go, uh, one thing I wanted to mention was um, it, I think it is, it is, it is a little unfortunate, because uh, Don just mentioned this, about the fact that they're going to extend the 14-man pitching staffs through the end of May. But I understand, understand why they're doing it. Yes, that's going to keep, instead of a 12-man staff, you're now going to have 14 and that's going to, you know, that's going to allow teams to continue to, you know, start, start, a starter goes five innings and then you run four relievers out there for an inning each, which I don't think any of us are a big fan of. Again, it's analytics, but uh, one of the reasons they're doing that is because of fear of, of injury, because there's already been uh, a few more injuries. Uh, the injuries are up now. Now homers may be down, but injuries are up. And again, the whole, the whole theory there is that, um, What's happened is that guys just weren't physically ready, uh, you know, coming out of out of a shortened spring training, and um, you know you hit the ground running and in cold weather, and uh, you know the adrenaline kind of gets the better of you in some cases, and some guys, you know, whether it's your arms, your legs, whatever it may be, uh, are feeling the effects. So uh, we'll see how it goes, but um, you know, uh, it's uh, we'll, we'll see. But uh, you, you got to protect the players first. I mean, that's certainly the most important. Wheeler, Roy, Zach Wheeler. Yeah, and and by the way, just to, to just a, to quick a quick mention, guys. Um, uh, Adam Duvall, who's known for his power, uh, just hit the ball the other way against the shift against the Cubs. Uh, nobody at all stationed between first and second base except the first baseman with a runner on first, and uh, Adam Duvall just hit the ball the other way. So, um, I, I, I again that. That's a very, talk about a real small sample size, but there's another example of how I think guys are trying to put the ball in play as opposed to just hitting home runs. And if it, if 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 we're heading into a, a little bit of a dead ball era, well, uh, I'm anxious to see how guys adjust to that and put the ball in play. So we'll see what happens. Well, everybody seems to think that's what's happening with the you know not only the humidor but also with the structure of the baseball this year as opposed to what it was you know two years ago or even last year, and uh, yeah. so. That'll be very, very interesting to see how in the world they uh, finally get this thing going back again in the right direction. Also, the fact that now they're talking about the shift and uh, putting lines out and on where second base for a shortstop can't go. Well, this this is for next year. Can't go beyond those lines. They have to stay in their zone uh, when they're playing. You know, in a defensive position. Uh, I had not heard that before, but that's one of the things they talked about today. Uh, which I don't know. I, I just don't understand analytics, analytics that uh, that well. I, I just I, I think it's great for pitchers. I think you got all the information and everything you have to have for pitchers. But I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it's helped the game one bit in other as every other aspect. Roger? Amen. No, amen, Don. Uh, I'm with you, and uh, I. But I also think it's ridiculous to have all these other lines on a field too. Okay, I mean, you know, you can have guidelines, but uh, it's just like the coach's box. Who stands in the coach's box within the lines all the time? Nobody that I know. Well, same thing with the on-deck circle. We used to be used to use that. They don't use that anymore either. But uh, anyway, I I don't know. I just, uh, Roy, uh, in summation, 
I agree with you 100%. They've got to change the game where we have some hit and runs, we have some stolen bases, we have a lot more activity in the game rather than 17 strikeouts and, uh, you know, five runs being scored. Even runs are down this year. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, uptick in runs. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, no uptick in runs. Uh, that, uh, but, again, I believe that at this point that has so – look, I mean, let's face it. Uh, you know, pitching is, is, is always ahead of hitting usually at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, so, so I, again, I think that has something to do with it. Um, that's part of it. I think the cold weather has something to do with it. Small sample size. I wouldn't read much into what we're seeing just yet. I think it's way too soon to suggest that uh, we've seen a shift in the way the game is uh, or the way production is is, is happening in the game. Uh, let's wait and see. But um, uh, hopefully if there's change, it'll happen organically. That would be nice as opposed to implementing rules that uh, say you can't put a, a certain player here or a player there. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I understand why it's happening, but um, I'd rather see the change happen organically. I know we're all anxious to see it happen because we love the game. And, um, you know, uh, I, I will say this, and I'll leave you guys with this. Um, yeah, runs may be down, but you know what? The Cubs beat somebody 21 to nothing. They've never done that before. So uh, they, <laughs> we still have that that moment here and there where where things are, uh, you know, where it's, where it's uh, uh, there's plenty of hitting going on. I'll, I'll say that. Roy, if, the, if people were here where we are and saw the Rays-Boston series over the weekend, uh, I mean, it was some great, great plays, some great baseball, and, and what fun games. I mean, they were just you, – you had to stay, and uh, normally uh, the drop doesn't have a, a big attendance, but for the Red Sox they did, and they went right to the last inning. He came out and hit that home run to bring him back into the air at second base. I mean, the whole weekend against the Red Sox, was uh, that's the kind of baseball people want to see, I think. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of it. I think if you if you look around baseball, you're seeing a lot of very interesting games. Um, again, look, not every team's going to play good. Um, not every game's going to be exciting. But uh, I think for the most part, uh, baseball still uh, it's, it's the best game out there. It still is, and uh, if we can get back to seeing it the way it was, uh, you know, back when we were kids, I think we'd all appreciate it. But um, you know what? I'm sure I'm sure somebody would complain about that too. <laughs> Roy, as always, thank you very much for the first half hour. Always great to talk with you, and we jump around to so many different topics, but uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Okay. Roger, are you still there waiting for the Philadelphia banquet to get going? Hello, Roger? Hey, Phil. Hello? Hello? Good, good, good. Oh, you got him? Yeah, we got him. Okay. Great. Okay. Yeah. All right, Don. Tonight we have uh, one of the best coaches that ever walked out of uh, St. Joseph's and uh, and done a wonderful job at the University of of Michigan when he took over as head coach. Uh, Coach uh, Martelli. Are we back on? Yes, sir. Phil, first of all, thank you very much for spending some time with us. And what an unusual year for you. And let me just uh, reiterate what Frank said a little bit. Uh, 
a great coaching career in Philadelphia as part of the Big Five package. Uh, some of the great games of all time in Philadelphia. And uh, you sort of laid in the wings there for a bit, and all of a sudden you're back behind the bench. Now, tell us first of all about that transition. All of a sudden you're not going from Little St. Joe. You're going from the biggest school in America, Michigan, and you're right there. You're, they put you on the front lines. Well, it was a uh, it was obviously an unusual circumstance, and it was uh, it was a uh, learning experience for everybody involved. Uh, you know what led up to that assignment, but once they called and said we want you to do this, they didn't ask me to try, Don. They asked me to to you know, move the program forward. And because of the the groundwork that had been done by Juwan Howard and the remarkable support staff and assistant coaches, um, it was it was a bigger setting, obviously, than I was used to. But it was it was uh, all about making sure that the players were prepared and and that we had a best opportunity to win those those five games and fortunately we were good enough three times and and the other two uh one was a loss to a philadelphian and fran uh fran mccaffrey and the other one was to uh illinois so like most coaches i remember the losses and and uh and and the wins i i, I try to make sure that the people that that pulled it off the players and the coaches received their fair share of, of praise. Well, Phil, I, I don't think most people, as they look at basketball, and we all watch so many games during the course of a year or part of so many games during the course of a year, uh, you know, how difficult it is at St. Joe, LaSalle, uh, you know, the smaller schools to compete against the Michigans. They have so many opportunities, so many options going their way. It's a very, very difficult situation to try to keep up with that kind of competition. There's there's no question about it that there's a uh, that there is a vision within the division 1 ranks of the haves and the have-nots. Uh, I think that in one way Don we're we're blessed to be involved in basketball because at the end of the day it's five or six or seven kids, not like a football program. Uh, you know, where it's 85 kids. And that's why right. it's always been amazing to me in Philadelphia, where, where, like, call it the way it is, Philadelphia doesn't really embrace college football. But, you know, the 85 kids who are banging their heads every day for, for Temple aren't like the 85 kids that are banging their heads at Michigan because these kids have a full-time nutritionist here and, and – multiple strength and conditioning coaches. So I think that you make a great point. The challenges in college basketball and college athletics, there is clearly a division of haves and have-nots. And having experienced this, the have portion of this for, uh, for three and a half years now makes me appreciate uh, – the remarkable teams that had, that we had at St. Joseph's and the remarkable teams that Speedy had at, at LaSalle. I think that 
that Jay Wright moved that Villanova program into a, into a, you know, they they were one of the the blue blood. So, uh, but again, much respect because they weren't dealing. Even Villanova's not dealing with the same kind of uh, deck of cards that we are here at Michigan. Well, I thought it was very interesting because St. Peter's and I followed it so closely, uh, not just during the playoffs. Uh, a good friend of mine's uh, uh, son plays on St. Peter's, and uh, uh, the interesting part about it to me was that their entire athletic budget, now that's not counting coaches. I don't know how much money the coaches get, but their whole athletic budget at St. Peter's for basketball is $285,000. That's it. Well, that was a beautiful story, uh, and it, you know when people would say it's a once in a lifetime. Yeah, it was a once in a lifetime, uh, but there'll be memories that everybody involved with with college basketball will carry forth. One of the things to caution against uh, is that you know next year's tournament. Let's hope that we want it to be as great as this year's tournament. And there may not be a a story about St. Peter's. That doesn't mean anybody failed. It just means that, that, um, you know, kind of chalk rose up. I think one of the things that smaller schools do is they don't recognize whom they really can be. And everybody wants to be Gonzaga. And then, Don, if we were to call Gonzaga tomorrow, they have 11,000 season ticket holders. So it might be a small school in terms of enrollment, uh, but it's not a small school in their arena, and they don't think about anything small in terms of scheduling, in terms of how they travel. Um, so I think as a smaller school, you have to recognize who you are. So St. Peter's was to say, you know what? We're going to strive to be Loyola Chicago. Then study exactly what Loyola Chicago did or does uh, to make them what they were, a Final Four team. Well, as I say, it's really so interesting. Everybody always roots for the underdog, obviously. And uh, you were in a situation uh, at St. Joseph's uh, where you had had limited funds and limited uh, recruiting ability. And uh, so when you go from when you go from St. Joseph's and all the hard work and number of years you put in there, and then you go to Michigan and say, you know, as John Cheney used to say to me, uh, you know, Michigan doesn't recruit players; they select players. <laughs> so does Kentucky, and and that's pretty much the realization of what it's all about. Well, there's no question; it's a, it's a it's about players, and I think when you take the step back and say. How, how did those successes occur? How did those successes occur at Temple? How did those successes occur at St. Joseph? And even even how did the successes occur at, at Villanova? It boils down to really good players. Now, you can't be wrong. You know, at a smaller school, you can't be wrong because th- that opportunity may drift away. So uh, we were right. And we had a, a, a heck of a run, and John Cheney was right. And but I think that one of the things is you have to recruit, you have to recruit the player to the setting. And if and if big is going to attract somebody, if well, 
you know, instead of six pairs of sneakers, we can give you eight pairs of sneakers. Uh, in, in today's world, if the NIL, if, if people are worried about the NIL, then they wouldn't be right. And, and they're, not gonna, they're, not going to, they're not going to battle and overcome what you might have shortage in staff or you might have shortage in facility. So I think it's about the right, I still think this game is about having the right people uh, pushing in the right direction for the, for the goal being the greater good and not their individual good. Bill, when they first called you to come in to be an assistant coach and uh, uh, going up to when you took over those last six games, uh, were, you, were you a little uh, hesitant? Did you, were, were you didn't think your feet were getting in the fire, um, you know, making this move, or were you confident that this was something you could really handle? Don, to be honest with you, the, the, the way I've answered that is, is uh, the basketball here is great. The way they treat me is exceptional, uh, but there's no place like home. And I'm very mm-hmm. much like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And uh, I, I, have, I have always prided myself on whatever the situation presents, whatever the challenge, that's going to be on me to improve every day. And so in my three and a half years at Michigan, I've tried to improve every day. I tried to embrace the bigness because you well know, I, I, was, I was very comfortable with small. I was very comfortable uh, uh, out about uh, in the city of Philadelphia representing St. Joseph's. And uh, here at Michigan, it really is basketball in terms of uh, recruiting, coaching, and then I go home and I do my scouting. So my family, my wife's still in Philadelphia, my daughter's in Philadelphia with four of my grandchildren. Um, I miss Philadelphia every single day. But this opportunity to absolutely positively get up every single day and pursue a national championship is one that I couldn't pass on. Hey, Bill, I, I, Roger, I, I got a couple of uh, questions on the follow-up on that. Uh, you know, the, uh, I can understand that, and, and I've read that before about, uh, you know, you're a Philadelphia guy, you miss it, you don't see your family. Uh, and uh, I know when you get down, down at the shore and you're with your buddy Gino Oriema, who once said that when they asked him if he wanted to coach a men's team, he said, no, I'm going to be Phil Mortelli's assistant when he goes to the NBA. And, and I'm a big fan of Gino and, and UConn basketball, you know, women's basketball. And, of course, your wife was a star at Immaculata. But the other thing is, you know, I, I moved a year and a half ago back to Georgia. And, of course, this year, what you're talking about with Michigan this was unbelievable at Georgia, but people, you're right. I mean, I went to Temple and, and they we used to they play at Temple Stadium, but when, when that, down here, when you have a four-hour pregame show for football, you've got a four-hour postgame, and then you've got all these there other go. shows. People don't uh, don't know. They have no comprehension what like it is in the Big Ten and in the SEC. Compare, you know, compared to what you and I are used to in Philadelphia. 
Absolutely. Uh, and, and because when I first got out here, people would say to me, what is it that you, that you want to experience? I said, well, in basketball, I want to experience getting up every day to pursue national championship. I said, but the, I also want to see what this is like because I, I really didn't have a feel for a football weekend or, a, or a, as you say, a, a three- or four-hour uh, tailgating, not the party part of it, but just the social part of that. So uh, having had those experiences, I will relay one other uh, experience that blew my mind. This year uh, was the first Michigan-Ohio State game that we were in town for. And uh, I, we played the night before, and we were off that day from practice. So I kind of wandered around the, um, the parking lot just to see what it was like. There were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Ohio State gear, and people were good-naturedly going back and forth. And I said, uh, this wouldn't be the way it would be. Uh, I, I've seen too many other scenes where it would be, uh, you know, if it was a Cowboys fan, the, the Cowboys fans weren't treated as kindly as, as these Midwesterners treated, treated their rivals. <laughs> Well, it's, it's really, Bill, it's an amazing transition. It's an amazing transition. And uh, as Roger indicated, uh, you know, you're talking about apples and oranges at the same time. And uh, my, my, and watching you on TV is uh, we're fortunate enough to get every game that, that you stood up and were the head coach. And I feel a little bad about Howard because he knocked us out of the NCAA tournament twice. <laughs> yeah. Once we were going, once we were going to the final eight in Seattle, and they knocked us, he knocked us out with the Fab Five, and uh, so I, I, I have the very, very strong weakness for for Howard. He, he, he led the way, but it was a tough, was a tough loss for some of the guys like Cunningham and the guys that we had on the Temple team. He, he remembers that, and and often, um, I, I have a little thing in my office. Uh, I have the program from John Cheney's funeral, and I kept that on my on my uh, windowsill because uh, uh, every once in a while, when I when I daydream and I reminisce, I'll think, man, I, I had the chance to be in the presence and to be on the sideline against a Hall of Famer, not a Hall of Fame coach, but a Hall of Fame character, a Hall of Fame Philadelphian, and uh, I, I I've often said this. Uh, that what I took from St. Joseph's were not the wins and not the, not the accolades and not the championships, but what I took was my relationships and my memories. And no one Absolutely. can ever take those from me. So, Absolutely. Uh, Roger, I thought you were yeah, at the banquet. I didn't think you were still on with us. Go ahead. No, I'm uh, the banquet's Monday, and, and, you know, I'm on an email with a good friend of uh, Phil's, Marie Wozniak, all the time about the uh, sports writers banquet Monday night. But I wanted to ask you, Phil, what about your buddy Fran Dunphy getting back into the coaching arena? <laughs> well, you know what? It's a, uh, it's a, um, it's a testimony to who he is. Like no one should get confused. This wasn't a guy that was, that was chopping at the bit to coach, 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 be in the limelight. 
what he did, what he's doing is purely and simply from love of school. He's mm-hmm. so appreciative of what LaSalle did for him, and now he wants to give back at a time when they really need him. You know, the school needs him. Obviously, the program needs him. Uh, but, uh, he, you know, he's going to give it all of his expertise, all of his energy. But I think if people could just step back and say, is there anything in your life that you love that you would sacrifice as much as he's sacrificing? Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, his, his uh, golf handicap might go up from like a, a 7 to an 11 because he's not going to play as much. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, he, 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 he did a great job at the University of Pennsylvania, did a great uh, job as a player at LaSalle, and uh, really uh, came, into Temple, came into Temple behind John Chaney, and uh, things were very, very difficult. But, you know, more wins than anybody, any coach in the history of Philadelphia, one of the terrific guys. And, and, and lastly, but not leastly, uh, Phil, uh, when you talk about, you know, what a great character builder he is, 62 years of age, he's going to have a very, very tough time uh, with all that responsibility trying to keep that team competitive night in and night out. No, there's no, there's no question. Uh, but, you know, if he can pass on to these current players that, you know, we're all responsible to give back, uh, to give back to the institutions that give us so much, then I think it'll be a – I think it'll be a uh, – He'll create more special memories. Bill, I want to thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on what's happening out there in Michigan. And I hope you get to stand up there a few more times and get up there and collect that big prize. (laughs) Well, that's why I'm here. I want to, I want to, I want to be on the sidelines on a Monday night in, in, in April. And uh, I have great belief in Michigan. I have great belief in Juwan Howard. And uh, I'm going to stay at it until I can coach on that Monday night. And then on that Tuesday, I'm going to be somewhere with a soft pretzel and a water ice in my daily news. <laughs> Terrific. Hey, Terrific segment. Phil, Phil, Phil Martelli, our guest. I just want to say, say one thing, Don, before Phil goes. You know, Gino uh, has said, Don and I have talked about this on and off the air, about the stress of this past season, okay, the most yeah. he's ever had. And I'll tell you yep. what, I've been around him many, many times. You can see physically where this really took a toll on Gino. Do you agree with me about that? I, absolutely. And But one thing I want, like one thing that people have to step back and just appreciate for the ages, the man has been to 14 straight Final Fours. Yep, he's right. the greatest. He's the greatest women's basketball coach of all time, Absolutely. and he can't go in the Hall of Fame again and again. But fourteen straight Final Fours, unbelievable! It is. And he got there this year with a bunch of injuries. He got there with a COVID, COVID himself. His teammates, his his players got the COVID. It was yeah. one of the toughest years I think in his coaching career for anybody. Well, we need everybody to keep it. Keep an eye out for him because I have it on pretty good authority. He'll be wandering the streets of uh, of Avalon a lot of this summer. <laughs> so people should be on the lookout for him. <laughs> Phil, thank and, you. And thank they, you so very much. We'll right, tap in care. with you again 
We hope you'll rejoin us again and again. You're the best. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Let me go back to our our ringleader, Frank Carroll, because he's got our next guest. And, Frank, you know more than we all do. Go ahead. Okay. uh, Todd, we have a a guy on the line who's uh, probably one of the nicest people you'll ever want to meet. Uh, very, very, uh, uh, out, uh, very uh, polite, very nice. Uh, but you put him in a ring, he'll tear your tear your uh, arms off. Uh, that's our a good friend of mine, uh, Mike uh, Faulkner. Mike, how you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing, sir? We're doing great. Hey, Mike, uh, you have an amazing uh, record here. Uh, in your first fight, uh, you submitted the guy in 39 seconds. Uh, of the first round. And, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I've been training since I was uh, 17 in uh, MMA and boxing. That's when I officially started training. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, coming into that fight, I've had a lot of experience up until that point. I wrestled in high school. I started just when I was 17 in boxing when I was 17. And I officially started MMA at 18. But, uh I've been training with all the best uh, available near me ever since I was a kid because I was always looking to push myself, whether it was in a wrestling room or any room I went into. I wanted to go against the best and hopefully get to that level they were at and pass them up. But um, mm-hmm. coming to that fight, I was only 19 when I took that fight, and I took it on a, a three weeks' notice. And it was versus someone that was uh, had a lot more experience and was 28 years old. So I pretty much had uh, – all the cards stacked against me. I was actually the only guy to win in the blue corner that night. Mm-hmm. And I won in, yeah, like you said, 39 seconds. So it was very good. Mm-hmm. I always try to stay prepared. So it was a very surreal, mm-hmm. really good night. And I think it uh, helped me get the confidence. And I'm about to hopefully get another night like that this Sunday. So tell us about that, Mike. What division, yes, what, what division are we talking about here? Yes, sir. I fight at 145 pounds. That's a featherweight in MMA. In boxing, that'll be uh, junior welterweight. That's 147 pounds. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I walk around. I'm not that uh, heavy or anything like that, so the, the cut's really easy for me. That's why I was able to take this fight on short notice uh, this weekend with only uh, six days notice. I kind of knew about it for like a week and a half. It was a possibility, but it wasn't uh, certain until about yesterday. That's whenever I got the uh, – the call from my coach, and he asked me, he's like, hey, Mike, you don't have to take this fight, but uh, we got a guy lined up for you, and we think you do very well, and it's on uh, this Sunday. And without a without a second to spare, I was like, I'll take it, because I'm always ready to go. Mike, where is the, ba- where is the battle going to be held? Yes, sir, it's going to be in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. I can't remember the name of the hotel. I think it's the Luminaries, how it's uh, pronounced. I just got the fight t- uh, details yesterday, so uh, I only know my opponent and uh, the weight and how many rounds and stuff like that. But I don't have like uh, all the details. Like uh, how I many might, rounds I is it going to be? Weighing in virtual, it's going to be three rounds. Uh, it's an amateur, so it's only three three-minute rounds. But I've been training five five-minute rounds, even though I wasn't in a particular like uh, camp camp. I was still basically in camp because I always try to push myself. But I've been doing five five-minute rounds with some of the best pros in uh, Tampa and Florida. Hey, Mike, you mentioned you started at 17 years old. 
Uh, when yes, did sir. you really get the the bug and and feel that you really wanted to get into the boxing arena as a career? Well, I wrestled through high school, but when I was 17, I officially had like the urge to want to test myself. So I went to this local boxing gym, which I knew had a lot of young prospects, a lot of guys that won the Golden Gloves and the amateurs, and a, and a few really good undefeated prospect uh, pros. So I went there, and uh, I was only 17. I was, like, one of the youngest guys in the gym, but I always got a really good physique. I always try to stay in shape, so I look a little bigger than what I am. But I was uh, sparring a pro. It was probably, like, I don't know, the third week I've been training there. They they finally allowed me to spar. I was sparring a pro, and uh, I was sparring him, and he had a lot more technical ability and uh, definitely was in uh, better shape. It was just all around – had everything stacked. Uh, I had everything stacked against me, but I ended up dropping him with a straight right hand, and that kind of like made me think, like, hey, maybe I can uh, do this for a living type of thing. But I've always been a, a fascinated uh, person when it comes to the sport of boxing and fighting and MMA, especially. That's right. why I started uh, wrestling. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And Mike, you had a uh, on your uh, YouTube. You have a. Uh, um, about with a guy who is, is, has has been in MMA and UFC for a long time, and you really handle him well. Uh, can, you, can you expound that on that for us? Yes, sir. I always, uh, like I said, I try to push myself in the training room. So even though a lot of these guys that I'll be fighting, especially in the future, I always try to push myself. I'll never fight a guy that I know that I can be easily. I always want to test myself and fight the best available. But I think – my training is a real good testament, and my coaches are a testament to how I perform on the night of the fights because they always put me in there with the toughest guys in the gym, guys that are way more experienced and have way more wins. So whenever I go out there and I fight, and it's a real fight, and I'm fighting the guys that are more experienced, it's not nothing, anything new to me. Like uh, the last month or so, I've been sparring uh, guys like Billy Corentil. He's in the UFC. I think he's ranked number 15 or 14 in the UFC for my division of featherweight. Mm-hmm. I'm sparring with Matt Frivola. He's a UFC lightweight in the top 15. So really a whole bunch of really good mm-hmm. fighters. Roger, so you talk about it. You talk about your gym well, and Frank. Uh, your, coach, your coaches. Tell us about your coaches. Cause your coaches come from, uh, tell us about your gym and your coaches because the gym itself is named for a, a very, uh, uh, prominent uh, MMA fighter. Yes, sir. Um, I train at two different gyms. They're both linked. Uh, they're, uh, I guess, what you call them, cousin gyms. They both are mm-hmm. underneath uh, the same lineage. So, Gracie Tampa South. That's the gym I go to spar and do MMA at. That's where all like uh, the guys I spar, like Billy Corantillo and Mafravola, are. They uh, are coached underneath. Matt Arroyo, who's a, a black belt underneath Hoist Gracie. And then my coaches that I train with uh, most of my uh, week, six days out of the week I train, uh, I train at Gracie Apollo Beach, and that's with uh, Luis Mata and Aaron Mata, and they're both black belts underneath uh, Matt Arroyo, who's a black belt underneath Hoist Gracie, who's the guy that won the first uh, three UFC events and was the champion, the first ever champion of the UFC history. Mm-hmm. But they're very, Roger. very good gyms, and uh, they have a lot of great talent. There's a lot of guys that have fought in the company that I have fought for as well as uh, other companies that have been champs for them. Hey, Mike, uh, mm-hmm. how many uh, the uh, different uh, cards 
uh, well, I mean, on the card, how many different fights are there this coming Sunday night? Um, I know I just looked at it uh, yesterday because, like, usually I don't ever look at the cards, but I figured I'd check it out. I uh, looked at the card, and it looks like there was, like, a, it's kind of the same as my last fight. There's There's kickboxing matches. There's boxing matches. I think there's a couple of grappling matches. And then, of course, there's uh, MMA fights. But there's a few youth MMA fights, I think, uh, as well, and youth kickboxing fights. I think there's like 15 or 16 fights on the card. Oh, And I'll probably yeah. be on the main card. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big night. Yeah. Yes, sir. My last uh, Mike, well, fight. Well, are you from Florida originally? Where did you go to school? I was actually uh, – I'm actually from St. Louis area. I went – and I went to school about 20 minutes from St. Louis in a little town of O'Fallon, Illinois. That's where I went to school, and I lived uh, most of my life before I moved here. That's where you got started with wrestling and so forth before you got into the boxing in St. Louis. Yes, sir. Yeah, That's Illinois that. and that area is really good for wrestling. Right? I'll tell you, you've had quite a career, a, Mike. I'll tell you, it's impressive. Thank you, thank you. Uh, 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 yeah. You have a YouTube uh, uh, site on there. Why don't you let our, our fans know uh, where it is so you can pick up some uh, some uh, followers. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, Mike Faulkner one just no capitals, just Mike Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R, and then the number one. Or you can follow my Facebook. It's Mike Faulkner. It's uh, it's, it's the same. But that's all I have as far as uh, social medias. I don't mm-hmm. have a YouTube channel yet, but I plan on in the next year making one, and I'll have all my fights. Good. Good. And, and uh, again, uh, you have a, do you have a scouting is- system? Do you know who you're going to fight this weekend? And, and down at Fort Myers, do you have any idea? You know who he who is who he is in a technique. Yes, sir. I actually uh, I don't know him personally, of course, but I know his name and I've seen how he looks. And uh, I've also seen his first fight. He tried to hide it, I think, on uh, Facebook because he blocked uh, all the socials to where no one could see him except his followers or anything. But I still was able <laughs> to find him because uh, I'm pretty crafty. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Little report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I do scouting on everybody. I think he did the same thing with me because uh, since my fight got announced, I've had a lot of random people follow me, but a lot of people I don't know. So it's probably him doing the same thing to me, honestly, which is smart. You know, you always want to know what your opponent is. I got nothing to hide, really. There's not a lot you could tell from my uh, first two fights because I try to get them out of there. That way no one can really put a game plan together. I mean, they can't tell how good I am at really anything. But not that's, uh, that's the deal. Yeah, I'm going to look to finish the fight. A 39-second tap out is uh, is certainly uh, <laughs> something to be very proud of. Um, and yes, sir. you told me that uh, you still have your fight in uh, late May, early June in uh, Kissimmee. Um, well, I might have it. I'm not sure. It's nothing official yet. Last year, actually, I've had like 20 different people or 20 different fighters in my weight class either decline a fight with me or they accept a fight and then later they decline so nothing's ever certain <laughs> with me that's why i stay in shape uh 100 percent of the time mm-hmm. who's in yeah, your management group they're afraid of you what was that 
Gail Who's in your management group? My management group is actually both my head coaches right now. I don't have a specific uh, manager, but Coach Arroyo, Matt Arroyo, is a, a person that looks for fights with me. Billy Cornsilly fights in the UFC. He looks for fights for me. But my main uh, coaches, uh, Coach Aaron and Luis Mata, they're the one that find fights for me, especially, and uh, they pretty much control my as of right now. Help me find fights Roger. and help me get good competition. Well, I'll tell you, it, you know, you've got a, a good uh, foundation, and and uh, you really, you know, what you're doing. You can tell that from uh, our conversation here. And uh, you know, I just think it's it's terrific that you've come so far so fast. And of course, Frank knows more about it uh, than any of us. But um, you know, I think you know you've got a very bright uh, uh, avenue ahead. Uh, in boxing yes sir thank you yeah i put my heart and soul into this and uh every fight i have i try to make sure that i'm in the best shape mentally and physically that way i'll have no regrets i'm going to put everything i can into this sunday and every fight for the rest of my career i'm not interested uh you know of course everybody fights for money and everything otherwise everybody would be fighting for free but right now i am fighting for free that just goes to show that i do this for more than uh the money or anything. I'm not in it for the fame. I just want to be the best of all time and try to fight all the best guys in my area because that's all you can really do as a fighter. I think that's what everybody wants to do that wants to reach the highest level. How old are you now, Mike? I'm only uh, 22. I just turned 22 four or five months ago. Do you work full-time, time time too, to I'm, supplement? Uh, because Yes, sir. Uh, you do? Yes, sir. I work at a FedEx, and then as a package handler, I, I do that. I do odd jobs here and there, construction. Well, you do it all. You're dedicated. That really is impressive. I mean, that uh, you're not doing it for money now, and with the success that you've had, that's great. Yes, sir. I always try to make sure I have uh, options on the outside world. That way, I can focus on just fighting, just for the love of fighting. I don't want to ever have to do it just for the uh, money because sometimes that happens to fighters. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Mike, I know yeah. you've got a uh, early start in the morning, uh, uh, two o'clock. Uh, so I know you need to get to get to bed. But I appreciate your coming on. I will talk to you uh, tonight or tomorrow, uh, whenever you're done, and uh, we'll set up something for uh, uh, next week when uh, after you've won this fight to come back and talk about it on our Saturday night show. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Mike, thank you very, thank much, you very much. Great, great. Good luck, Mike. Great having a chance to talk with you, Mike. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you all very much. Have a good night. Impressive right, guys. Have, have a good night. Very impressive, young yes, man. Yes, sir. All right, Mike. Yes, sir. Thank is you. Correct and ready to go. Uh, our Washington, Baltimore correspondent, and uh, Mike. Uh, a lot of things going on down in the Washington, Baltimore area, and I think most of it uh, concerning what's going to happen tomorrow at the NFL draft. Uh, any insight on what uh, the Ravens are going to do or what Washington is going to do? Uh, at this point in time, it's 50-50 and pick them if we're going to get it right. Um, best I can say is uh, really who knows. I think uh, that the draft sets up a little bit better um, for the Ravens throughout the top half of the draft, uh, they have needs 
on the offensive line. They have needs on the defensive line. On the, in the, they have needs at wide receiver that they can all meet with their picks. Um, I'm not sure exactly where the uh, Ravens are going to go with their various picks because they can be very quiet about who they like. And sometimes the guys that they end up picking are guys who, who are appropriate for the pick but may not necessarily be the guy that you think, and then, but it makes sense. Um, it's a team that is unfortunate to be picking as high as it is, uh, mainly due to just how horrifically injured uh, they were last year and how many games uh, their quarterback wasn't able to, to play. Right? Uh, right. Lamar Jackson was out for so long that it really set that team back. This is a team that I think didn't think it would be picking in the top half of the first round because they had Super Bowl aspirations, and it just all kind of fell apart. You know, when you look at just how decimated they were at the running back position, they were taking anybody who was standing outside of a Royal Farms who had played running back at some point in their life, shooting them up and running them out there. The problem was they were getting hurt too. So... I, I don't know, um, but so that, that's a team, and whoever does get drafted into that into a situation. Uh, the commanders have a little bit of a different bird on their hands, uh, simply because where they're picking, they only have uh, two picks in the first 100. They have a first, a second, and then they don't draft until the fourth round. They have uh, two six and a seven, right? So they have six picks, but Three of them are on the very last day, so um, or four four of those last picks are on the last, final day of the draft. I'm sorry, they do the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds all along that day. Uh, and where you're looking at them at 11, a lot of the top rated prospects just don't line up real well with their needs. Uh, the commanders have been very blunt about the fact that they would like to trade back if they could, but for a trade to happen, there needs to be two people who want to, there needs to be a next, another party who wants to get engaged. And right now the phone hasn't necessarily been ringing. Uh, they have said that they look at this draft and they see like two or three great players, but then a significant drop off. And a lot of teams have said, you know, there's a drop-off in between maybe the top ten guys in the draft and what you would get afterwards. And unfortunately for the Sanders, they're at 11. So they need somebody to make a reach. Uh, I do know that based on their draft visits, it looks like it's either going to be a, one of the two safeties, Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame or Daxton Hill from Michigan. Uh, the other guy that they brought in who sort of rates in that neighborhood is the receiver out of Ohio State, Chris Olave. So uh, my bet for the commanders would be one of those three guys. Uh, I just think the their major needs are at wide receiver, at offensive line, at linebacker, and uh, defensive back. Uh, they didn't bring in any of the corners. The two top offensive linemen will likely be gone before they get there. 
and they're not going defensive line in the first round because they spent so much draft capital with the front four they've got now. Roger? Hey, uh, anything uh, has transpired that you uh, are cognizant of, uh, Mike, on the uh, Snyder situation? There was the the ranking minority of Congress member, the ranking Republican Congress member, said uh, that he thinks that the gentleman who provided the evidence that they were going on, the uh, ex-employee, should also be investigated. Uh, I don't know where the actual investigation is, and I don't know how it's going to pan out. We've seen some politics be brought into this, which is, I think, in a way, a way of trying to just muddy up the waters and make this disappear. It's not, to me, it's not a political issue. This isn't a political thing. It's kind of black and white. It's kind of binary. Either Mm -hmm. the commanders did what they said they did, and there is evidence that they did, or the guy who said they did is lying, and they didn't do it, and they should be acquitted. So somebody's not telling the truth here, and if you have a forensic accountant go through it, it should be pretty easy to tell um, what it is, and uh, otherwise it's black and white. So if the Redskins – um, it, I'm sorry, if the commanders and Dan Snyder did what they said they did, they need to suffer the consequences. If the guy who – the gentleman, the ex-employee, is actually just a disgruntled ex-employee and made this whole entire thing up, well, lying to Congress is a um, felony, and he should suffer those consequences. Uh, there's a lot of chatter about the fact that you know, if Congress changed its hands in November and this is not – uh, done, this investigation will just kind of disappear. You know, if I'm the NFL, I want an answer to this because this isn't about, again, this isn't subjective to me. This is kind of, they either did this or they, did, they didn't, and it's against the other owners and players. The league is involved in this. The league is a, part, a party to this. You know, I just don't ha- see how they can be comfortable with this, with not getting an, an appropriate answer into whether or not the commanders were withholding revenue from the NFL office and the other 31 teams. I, I would just imagine that this is something that they would really like to have an answer to. And I, I, I would be surprised if the other owners were willing to let Dan Snyder just kind of bury this in the back of the closet, sweep it under the rug, and welcome him into back or welcome him into the owners' meetings or in anything if there's an inkling that he may have been withholding money from him. Mm-hmm. We chatted a little bit about it last week, Mike, and that was, uh, uh, you know, who's going to take the action? Does he? Do the owners uh, make make the move? Does the commission make the move? Does uh, the investigating group make the move? Who's going to take the responsibility, uh, whether it's true or false? One thing either to deny it totally, or the other thing is to uh, somebody, one of the three uh, uh, aspects would have to take control. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I, I would think that if the Federal Trade Commission 
has the power to levy the sanctions, the civil sanctions on behalf of the government, right? So they could find them, they could press the charges, they could do that on behalf of the government. It's up to the NFL to do their own due diligence and levy NFL-based punishments if this is found to be true. Um, we have seen multiple times on at least the player aspect of it where you know, the NFL has levied punishments against players who have been you know, arrested, convicted, tried. Um, whether, you know, we've seen the NFL take action against players who have not been uh, charged with a crime. We've seen the, play, the NFL launch investigations simultaneously. You know, um, the situation with Deshaun Watson is a perfect example of this. You know, at the same time that the, uh, that the authorities in Houston are doing their investigation into these allegations against him, the NFL is also gathering theirs. And they're going to make a decision on whether or not he should be suspended the same way that the uh, government authorities are going to make a, a, a um, decision or made the decision not to charge him. I think it's up to the league at some point uh, to, make, to take this matter into their hands and say, you know, at a minimum, we're going to look into this too and see what punishments we should see because it's a league thing. This is, this is not – you know, at least a part of this, yes, I do understand there is this, this action of them withholding payments to companies and individuals, but there's also a major part of this is him withholding money that, you know, changing um, tickets and revenue, and which he reported to the league. So that's a, that's a crime against the, or a violation of league policy as much as anything else, and they should want the, they should want to handle that on their own and too. Roger? Well, yeah, I agree with you, Mike. Uh, absolutely, because uh, what's good for the goose has got to be good for the gander, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I, I just can't believe, that, you know, what the uh, Gruden got penalized, and, and yet the NFL has yet to come out with anything. And and what he was let go for was just what was said within the uh, supposedly the the investigation, right? Well, he was saying something in in the so Don Gruden had an email exchange with Bruce Allen, who was the general the vice president of the Commanders at the time. This right. all came out in that investigation. It also came out in the civil suit that Dan Snyder filed. So. Was that John Gruden was not actually involved in the issue that was being investigated or the, the issue that was being litigated. It was just that these emails of this conversation that he had by, with um, Bruce Allen became public, and it left the you know Mark Davis in this and the Raiders in this position where they had to do something with him. And it was very uncomfortable because how is he – like, he had – as much as anything, he had an issue with the fans and, and, and the players. You know, it mm -hmm. was going to be really hard for him to come back and coach those guys if after what he said in the volume of, uh, of the emails. And I think they dealt with him on that. Now, was he the target of this? No. It was something involving the commanders. Again, and it, he just got caught up in the wash. Here, like you said correctly – Roger, you know, you have this thing coming out that they 
may have participated in this scheme to convert and withhold revenue from the NFL and from um, ticket owners that they then converted and pocketed, uh, that's pretty, if true, that's kind of right on the definition of a fraudulent business practice. Right. I just question why the owners, the, you know, we always hear about how Roger Goodell works for the owners. I just don't understand how the owners wouldn't be on Roger Goodell to get a resolution to this, to say, like, you need to look into this. You need to do this because this guy, was te- he's stealing money from them. He's stealing right. money from the other owners. This is like right. he's one of 32. He's stealing money from the other 31. If I'm one of those guys and I find out he's doing this, I'm going to be – I'd probably be – I'd be flaming hot Cheeto mad, and I would question – his suitability to continue to be even remotely involved with that organization, with the league. Maybe, maybe the other 31 are also stealing from each other. <laughs> well, and, and Roger, you bring up a good point because you almost feel like if this goes away, you know, again, it's a case of the league protecting Dan Snyder and you look and you wonder, okay, well, if they're willing to turn a blind eye to this from him, either a, what has he got on them, or B, what are they doing to each other? Right. Yep. Oh, boy. What a great world we live in now, right? Oh, it's wonderful, <laughs> isn't it, Don? Wonderful. Oh. Mike, let's, before we run out of time, let's get to your barely work, which is uh, soccer and uh, MLS going on. A lot of things happening right now in the world. <laughs> soccer, uh, what would you like to touch on? Well, uh, a couple of things real quick. We're at the business end of the season in Europe. The Champions League uh, semifinals were t- uh, yesterday and today. Uh, it, yesterday's game between Real Madrid and Manchester City was just absolutely great. I mean, back and forth for 90 minutes. It ended up 4-3 between two of the biggest clubs in Europe. Uh, they'll get be added again on Wednesday. Uh, today's wasn't as good, but uh, be on the lookout for that. As far as MLS goes, um, the Philadelphia Union have kind of uh, stalled a little bit. Uh, they lost and drew in their last two games, so, but they're still top of the Eastern Conference. They're still on 17 points from eight games, averaging over two, a little over two points a game, which in the MLS puts you on record pace. Um, as far as Atlanta United down there, Roger, uh, it's mm-hmm. been a little bit of a tough go for them. They've only picked up one win in their last four. Yeah. They had a lot of new faces, and you, you feel as though, including the most expensive uh, teenager, or the, the expensive young player ever bought in MLS, uh, Diego Amato, who was brought in by, from, by Atlanta United, $16 million, which is a record for an incoming transfer for somebody that age. You know, when you're bringing in players like that, when you've got this team, it takes a little bit to gel. Also, Braku's on going out with a season, probably career-ending injury for him, has um, negatively impacted them. Uh, D.C. United, where I'm at, they fired their coach and immediately got a win. So hoping that new manager bounce gets them back in in it. Uh, So really interesting at least to start the uh, the season in MLS as we 
just about are going to pass the uh, we're going to pass the quarter pole of the season this week. Roger. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, Mike. Today, uh, flying up to Philadelphia, and uh, when I got to the airport, picking up a, a rental car, I uh, got in a conversation uh, with this uh, a woman who went to Tech, but she's in Charlotte, and a uh, a big soccer fan. And her question was about you, and I, I pass it to you because I told her about you. And uh, what do you think? Is the Charlotte team going to uh, come anywhere near as uh, close as the uh, the, the uh, Atlanta did with starting the franchise and you know in in, uh, in their inaugural season? Unfortunately, I doubt it. Uh, again, we've yeah. talked about uh, a, a bunch of times. When Arthur Blank bought the team, Arthur Blank wrote it, and I hate to use this, but there's no other way to do it. When Arthur Blank bought the team, he literally wrote a blank check. They right. have continued to spend the money necessary to put a championship product out on the field. He had deep pockets. He was able to back them. They currently have uh, the most expensive if you add up the value, the transfer value of all the players on the team, fees paid, all of that sort of stuff, they have the most expensively assembled team in MLS history. And I think it's close to $90 billion is the value of the player on that team. That's a lot for MLS, right? Right. Most teams and most owners just don't have the pockets that Arthur Blank and the – Ownership in Charlotte, you know, is not in the same financial position that Arthur Blank is. Uh, Charlotte itself, even though it's going to be a big draw and they are doing well numbers-wise, isn't um, drawing in the players. They're not generating the television revenue. They're not generating the advertising revenue. So they just don't have that financial clout that Atlanta did coming into the to the league. And it's not a shame to say, like, that was – it's very rare. You know, we've seen it with uh, Atlanta, and then we saw it with LAFC. And I think these are two very unique franchises in the amount of money that and capital resources that they had when they entered the league. Not every team is going to be able to do that. Will Charlotte be competitive this year? Yeah, they, they certainly have already been. They're not – you know, your typical expansion franchise and they're just like taking up a spot and they're anchored to the bottom of the league. But to be considered a contender in your first year to champion within the first three years, right, to to set it, to go at the pace that Atlanta United did is rare and requires a lot of resources. And the fact that they did it like most leagues mls is a copycat league after everybody saw what atlanta united did they started doing the same thing which makes it harder for everybody to accomplish mike once again thanks for this segment it's always a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you about what's happening in the world of sports and especially soccer which you keep your you keep your finger right on the pulse of what's happening in soccer thank you very very much once again 
All right. Thanks, I'll talk to you next week. Mike. By then, I should know what the uh, Redskins and the uh, Ravens did in the NFL draft. Absolutely. We'll be right, ready. Talk yeah. to you, gentlemen. Have a good one. Have a good one. Thanks, Mike. Doug, Doug Hamilton is on the line right now, our PGA professional. And uh, Doug, of course, uh, not only talks about golf with us teaching every week, but he talks about the Ravens and the Baltimore, and, uh, the Baltimore Baseball Club as well, the Orioles. And, uh, Doug, first of all, welcome again to the show. And uh, Mike had his ideas about what the Ravens were going to do in uh, tomorrow night's football activities of draft. What do you mm-hmm. think? You know, I feel like I've studied um, as much information as I can, um, listened to as many different, um, whether they're, you know, Jason Locke and Fora, um, just different outlets that I've obtained information from. And I, I think that the Ravens over the years, like I guess every other team maybe, they'll, they'll craft their draft board and say, okay, well, we're picking number 14. You know, if any one of these five guys are here, you know, the, that's our guy, right? So um, I think if they don't see that scenario, I think it's likely they'll trade out of the 14 and go down and, and get some additional picks. Um, but I would say if if they stay at 14, uh, it, it's likely to be – uh, they have to have their eyes on Derek Stingley, the corner from LSU. Um, you know, I think that Jermaine Johnson, the edge from Florida State, is is a distinct possibility. I don't know that I see them taking an offensive lineman at 14. I, I don't think that, um, although it would help their team, I don't think it would be an immediate impact like a, you know, a guy that can get to the quarterback. And, and obviously they've had their share of injuries. So, uh, you know, a guy like Stingley or Gardner, which I doubt will be there, but uh, a corner uh, that's going to probably either play the, the the slot or they'll push Marlon Humphrey in and he'll play the slot. I don't know, but I think either one of those two positions, I think, is the sweet spot for them in terms of immediately having an impact on their team. Roger? Doug, is that um, the consensus, um, you know, in the in your area? Uh, that um, that that's what uh, the the Ravens are really looking for. You know, I I mean, consensus is a broad ranging term, I think, because you know we we really don't know what their draft board looks like or what they feel like. I mean, they, you know, you can look at their their team and 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 their positions, and I mean. You know, how could I mean, because there's there's been discussions, you know, in terms of of who they're quote unquote linked to. Um, You know, they've had people link them to the center from Iowa, Lindenbaum, which, you know, I I mean, that's such an unsexy pick at 14, although I, you know, does it help their team immediately? I mean, maybe Um, Jordan Davis is another one that's been linked to them. Uh, But although he's an incredibly freakish athlete, um, you know, I, I think they have troubles with pass rush, and I think that he's a two-down run stopper, and I, I think he'll be standing on the sidelines and on third down, which I don't think you can devote a 14th overall pick to. Um, some, of the, some of the Eagles people think the same thing about that uh, only two down, unless he gets his weight down. You know, I think the other tackle from Georgia is the better of the two prospects. This is just my belief, but I think that Devontae Wyatt – is an Aaron Donald-like football player. Um, I really think that he has such an upside in the pass rush from the interior position that, um, I don't know, I mean, I, I think he, you know, 
He's, I mean, because here's the other thing. I mean, the Ravens are eventually going to take an interior offensive lineman, and if they took a center in the second or third round, you know, he plays immediately. And I also think that they have concerns that Ronnie Stanley is going to be able to come back at full strength and, and be healthy. And right now they're, they're talking about putting Patrick McCary in at the center, which I think if you draft the center, you kick him out to the left tackle spot, and he's your, he's your backup and your insurance, if you will, if Ronnie Stanley needs a few more weeks to start the season. So, and two through five. They, uh, not just necessarily the first round, but uh, they've right. had great success in their scouting combine. They come up sure. with really key players, two through five. Well, I think the the tricky part for them is going to be because I've, I've heard some really stupid intel from from some of these people that you know they're going to take a wide receiver at some point. They're going to take uh, they possibly could take a quarterback at some point. That uh, you know I think a running back in in one of the rounds is probably you know a wise move to to get the season started. Um, they definitely want uh, what they call a move tight end, which which uh, Hayden Hurst was that they traded away. Who's going to, you know, be a buddy of Mark Andrews okay. so that they can get another another guy in the slot. Um, you know, they do have a need for you know interior offensive and defensive line. They have obviously corner. They need a linebacker. I mean, they have I think nine draft picks um, or ten maybe ten draft picks. And they're going to have to have a really successful draft in order to fill all these holes, you know, but here's the thing. I mean, you draft a guy in the fourth round. I mean, that guy's not necessarily in most years going to be penciled in as a starter. Uh, But in the case of the Ravens, I think they have enough holes that they're going to have to be pretty, you know, deep with their draft to get starters into that third and fourth round. You know, they can play right away. Um, uh, we got you know, a caller they, they, on the line that wants to chat with you a little bit. That uh, Brian's on the t- on the line. Frank tells me so. Go to it. Okay. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Great. Good, Brian. How you doing? Oh, hanging in there. I'm just uh, I'm getting back into the NFL uh, for the first time in years. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Raiders fan. Uh, been a fan since 1986 when I was just a boy. And. Uh, I'm getting excited because I'm moving out to Vegas, but I'm wondering if this is really going to matter. Should Carr stay? The, the, the addition of the Devontae Adams, is this going to actually make a difference, or are we just going to still sit in the, mid, the, you know, in the middle of the AFC West? Well, we'll let Roger yeah. go first. Give him an answer, Roger. <laughs> well, I think that the uh, Raiders are on the move up. And, um, you know, I think it would, if Gruden had stayed, I, they'd probably be a, a step ahead. But uh, I really well, uh, th- th- there was, I think – Well, that was – that's a political thing. That was a Democratic Party. Oh, I know Gruden. it was. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But I just – I think that uh, they are uh, on the move. I think they've got uh, a home now. You know, they're not worrying about any stadium issues and – things like that, and uh, they can concentrate on winning. And I think that they really uh, are uh, positioned, uh, and we'll see how the draft goes, but I do think that they're in good shape. I mean, we, we Doug, looked, give, uh, Brian, give, give Brian your two cents worth, Doug. <laughs> well, you know, that, that uh, AFC West is tough. Um, you've got, you know, a, a trending upward you know, San Diego team, obviously the Chiefs are there. And now with the Broncos, um, I, mean, I think the Broncos and the Raiders are probably going to vie it out for 30 years in their division. However, 
I think on the upside, you, you know, you have a regime change where, you know, Mike Mayock is no longer there. And I, I think that they've made some really poor draft picks over the last couple of years uh, based on the vision Absolutely. of what John Gruden had. Um, I think that you, I think Derek Carr is a good quarterback and I don't think he gets enough credit for being a good quarterback because people are always talking about Mahomes and Wilson and all these other guys, but you add Devontae Adams to that team, uh, who obviously you can make a case for being the best wide receiver in football, although be it significantly overpaid. Um, you know, I think they need to have a pretty good draft. Um, but, I, I mean, you know, it, I, I don't know. I, I, the Raiders well, well, always they play tough. Would you would you call what I uh, what I'm about to say is probably not more uh, intellectual about the sport, but more bitter? <laughs> I'm, am I happier about getting Devontae Adams, or am I happier that Tyreek Hill left the division? That's a good point. We got to play him. Yeah, we got to play them twice twice a, a year. Well, I'm glad that he's gone. You know, and, and I'll say this from my position as a, as a Baltimore Ravens fan. I mean, when you start talking about the salary cap and how you massage those numbers, I mean, when you're, when you're paying a wide receiver and a quarterback, you know, 60-some million dollars, I mean, that eats into your payroll in terms of being able to spread that across all your well, positions. Well, you, and that you makes, saw what, well, that, that makes you those saw rookie Derek contracts Hart. so much better, you know. Yeah, but you had to see what Derek Carr did this year when he restructured. Yeah. He said yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lose I'm not going to lose another great player for money. Right. You very rarely yet, see that cuz now you you're looking at me for the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar's going to cash in at some point in the 40 or 50 million dollar range and that's going to be destructive to fielding a football team, you know, under that salary cap. How do, how do you how do you go get good players, you know? Look at the contract he just signed. <laughs> He's not underrated according to the to the organization. I mean, he, what, he just got a big, big contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, I think the uh, the whole Denver Broncos and getting Russell Wilson, I think, is I don't know. I'm, I can't say that I'm a Russell Russell Wilson fan. I appreciate him, but um, um, you know that I, I don't. The depth I don't think he's going to make too much of a difference there. Yeah, that definitely. I, I, I think he's going he's, he's to he's gonna make the the, the entire uh, franchise stagnant for about like three years. Right. Right. Well, not, yeah, I guess they're hoping they can. Uh, they're hoping they can they can go back to that well that that uh, Peyton Manning came from for a couple of years and and how he produced, I guess, and and rejuvenated himself. But um, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, but he's no Peyton Manning. Right. Well, I mean, another another thing of a, of a bitter guy. Like I'm not as knowledgeable as you. Uh, I'm a bitter guy. So like I, I always said that Peyton Manning, I thought was was the best quarterback in the league at the time. And the second uh-huh. he went to came to my division, I started saying that he had a stack of dimes in the neck, and I hated his guts. Right. That was just <laughs> a personal guy. Well, listen, I mean, I, there's. There's there's certainly no love lost between me and the Pittsburgh Steelers, so I understand what you're saying. I, I, I love that. I'm still upset. I'm still upset, upset about Franco Harris, and that happened before I was born. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, these guys. I'm the one of those know, guys. Uh, my general disdain for most things that come out of Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just glad we got a passionate fan on the line, not somebody that goes yeah. to the red zone because they bet on 
they've been on eight teams and they don't watch one team. They watch eight teams that they bet on. <laughs> so right. happy to have Brian, happy to have somebody come on that really uh, follows the team and loves the team. Well, I mean, I've, I've loved the team since 1986, man. It's, I was six years old. I mean, I'm born in 80. I'm only 42 years old. I'm a young buck. Yeah. But I, I love yeah. the team so much, and, and I still, I'm still bitter about them going to Las Vegas. I still don't understand it. It makes no sense. I mean, and, and I can explain it to you in layman's terms if, you, if you'd like. Yeah. How does a pirate get to Las Vegas? Where's the boat? Where did they park the boat? Right. It was, it, it was on the Mayflower. It was it was on the Mayflower truck when they when the yeah. boat left. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we gave them like me. Right. I could have understood when they tried to move us to San Antonio the year before. Mm-hmm. I can understand it. At least there's a river. <laughs> you know what it is, Brian. Well, you know that it's all money, dollars and cents. <clears throat> They got a heck of a stadium, the the uh, the whole nine yards, you know. And um, I will say this about Franco Harris: uh, you got two, two of us, three of us on here. We saw how Franco Harris play in high school, so that shows you we're old. Yeah, well, I have my my grandfather, well, not my grandfather, my 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 grandmother's boyfriend, because she never stopped dating after the divorce. She was a very cute woman. She uh, married this guy, came over from Italy, fresh off the boat, and he was a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan until he found out that Franco Harris was only half Italian. (laughs) (laughs) When he found out the other half, he lost his mind and never watched football again. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Uh, That's good. Well, Brian, thank you very much for your input in the we show. We really appreciate it. Take care, Brian. Have a great evening. Keep, keep listening yeah, to us. We'll keep going. Thank you. All right. Okay, I, appreciate I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Yep. Take, Take care. care. All right. Have a good one. Well, a lot of speculation on what everybody's going to do tomorrow night. And uh, uh-huh. as I say, in, in, in my uh, very, very weak knowledge of the draft, uh, you know, I watched the first round because I recognized most of the players. Mm-hmm. Not that I know what. Not that I can evaluate their ability uh, to the position they're going to be drafted in, but because uh, you recognize most of the most of the people from uh, you know watching games week in and week out. But after you go by the first round, I have no interest because I have no knowledge of the players and uh, what they're going to bring to a to a specific club. So I'm good for the first round, but then I'm back to baseball. Well, you know, I think that's where it really starts to get interesting is once you get past the first round because people say, well, you know, it's easy to pick somebody in the first round because they're all good, right? If you're picking number 14, how can you mess that that one up? But once you get into the second, third, and fourth round. That's the Eagles. The Eagles can tell you how they mess it up. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, that's what really shapes your team when you can select individuals. And and these these aren't – it's not as clear-cut as saying, well, you know, player A, like Jordan Davis is a great example. Jordan Davis is a freak athlete. He's a great football player. But he is. is he going to fit is he going to fit into your team's scheme? You know, so you know, if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, right, and you're drafting number twenty, if Jordan Davis is there, you take that guy because you're a run stuffing football team that can you know, you, you already have pass rushers, you already have the back end of your of your secondary. That guy's going to 
be the one, you know, the, the linchpin in your defense that's going to say, you know what, nobody's getting through here. You know, you stick him next to, I forget the guy's name that, that was really good next to him. I mean, that that's a formidable duo. And, and no, in Pittsburgh, I was talking about. Um, I can't think of his name. Well, the Bucks are going right through that right now with Dominic Shue. Are they going to bring him back? Uh, you know, he wants a lot of money, and they're up against the cap like you talked about before. And, uh, yeah. of course, everybody's up against the cap for the most part. And uh, so, well, you know, but, he, but he's a great interior uh, defensive lineman. I mean, uh, you know, he stacks it up. To not necessarily a great pass rusher, but he's, uh, right. he maintains the line of scrimmage. And uh, so well, and I think he'll be a big, I think he'll be a big loss to the Bucks if he, if he, if he goes elsewhere. Well, let's also not forget about, I mean, do these teams draft based on really good football players or are they drafting based upon needs? Because, you know, if, if you're looking at a team like uh, the Atlanta Falcons, I mean, they, they have Marcus Mariota as their quarterback. Is he the answer? So you're drafting, you know, you're picking number eight, you know, is that a, is that a, a good time to take the quarterback of your future, or is he not in this draft? Or, you know, if you're the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I mean, how many more years are you getting out of Tom Brady? I mean, if you're the Washington football team, is Carson Wentz the answer? You know, if you're Carolina, you're, you're Sam Darnold. I mean, you know, that's one thing you haven't heard much about in this draft is the quarterback position because there's no clear-cut number one, yet it's a quarterback-driven league, and if you don't have somebody better than somebody that – is in this draft, like that guy, Kenny Pickett, I think he's pretty good. Is he better than what you have? Is he your answer? And how high are you willing to jump? And I think that's really going to be what the difference is going to be in this draft is the movement in trades based upon who wants what quarterback. Because a lot of the teams ahead of the Baltimore Ravens at 14 don't necessarily need one, you know, but are they willing to trade their pick to someone else to acquire more? Right. Roger? So. Well, you're, you know, uh, you're right, uh, Mike, and I mean, uh, Doug, you're, you're a hundred percent. And, uh, and what I would uh, say is that the, you don't know what goes on in that draft room. Okay. Tick is the word. Frank, thank you very much. Another great job at the control. Roger, we'll get together and have a good, have a good banquet down there for the Philadelphia sports writers. God bless. Doug, thank you very much, and we'll chat soon again. Take care, fellas. Take care. Good night, fellas. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, new photos are brought to you each and every night of the week. In grateful appreciation to the men of the United States Armed Forces, men of the Police and Fire Services. When you're out there and you see somebody in uniform, please let them know you know they're there. These are very tough times for everybody in uniform. These programs are dedicated to those who've lost their lives in the line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman Jeffrey Colcap, Sergeant Thomas Badinger, Patrolman David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazowitz, Detective Randy Bell, Detective Rick Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Henler, Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, Patrolman Charlie Condit, Carpenter Springs Police Department, Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, uh, Sergeant Chris Lee, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. Patrolman and Officer Christman, Lakeland PD. Lieutenant Joe Zerba, Newcastle County Police. <clears throat> Deputy Josh Meyer, Nassau County Sheriff's Department. Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department. Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department. Lieutenant Artif Pope, Wilmington Fire Department. 
Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Burlington Fire Department. Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol. Chief Al Ogle, Long Beach Police Department. Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. My brothers and sisters, I know you may be 10-7 at this point in time, but sometime we'll be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, may the rose rise up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the rains fall softly on your fields. And may the sun shine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your families always in the hallow of his hand. Good night. God bless and have a great day.
1999. County dispatch to 1999. OUSB advised 1999 responded to his last emergency. That his soul and all the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. Amen. Bye, Bob. We only miss you.